Hi everyone, today is January 30th, 2014. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Richard Zygmunt, who is Professor of Neuroscience at Case Western Reserve University. Hi, Richard. Hi. Um, so over the years, his research, has, uh, his research focus has been uh, on neuroplasticity in sort of a large sense. However, recently he's focusing on, I guess not too recently, I guess in the last couple of decades. 25 years. <laughs> not recently at all. He's focusing on molecular dynamics involved in axonal injury and the factors that mediate intrinsic growth capacity of sympathetic and sensory <coughs> neurons. And, and that's um, what we're going to talk about today. So around the room we've got Carlos Palladini. Hello. And we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. Hi. And I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So just um, as an overview for our, our audience, Richard, you're going to tell us today about what's understood about um, the role of macrophages in neuronal degeneration and, and some of your new ideas about how macrophage action may actually be broader than what we've understood and, and may be involved in some regenerative actions as well as degenerative, right? So that's sort of right. that's, that's right. one story. But since... Um, I mean, for, for the sake of me and our audience, we haven't talked much about peripheral nerve regeneration here, um, nor have we had much discussion about inflammation and the players involved in, in neuroimmune actions in the nervous system or about exotomy in general. Um, could you kind of give us a little bit of a primer? <laughs> Can you talk to us about some of those issues? Could you um, maybe describe what happens at the site of exotomy? Maybe some of the history of, of the field would be great. Um, you know. Sure, sure. I can tell you how I got into it. Um, we had, uh, well, we study uh, ganglia, which are collections of neurons in the periphery, and we study two types, sympathetic ganglia, uh, which involve synapses between cells that are located in the spinal cord and come out to these ganglia, and then the cells in the ganglia that project to target tissues. And we study sensory neurons, uh, ganglia, which are called dorsal root ganglia, and they don't have synapses. They just have a process that comes from the periphery, then a cell body in the ganglia, and then the process uh, continues on to the spinal cord. So we, we had discovered um, that there was, uh, at the synapse in the sympathetic ganglia, which had been studied for many years and was well known to involve acetylcholine, uh, we had discovered that that must not be the only transmitter in those ganglia because if you blocked acetylcholine and stimulated the input neurons, you still got effects on the output neurons. So there had to be something there besides acetylcholine, and we had some evidence that it was a neuropeptide and, and that it was a neuropeptide of a certain family called the vasoactive intestinal peptide family. So when I moved to Cleveland, I asked a student who was doing a short rotation to do a very simple experiment, which was to take the ganglia out of the animal and put it into a culture, which we call an explant culture, and show that this peptide that we thought was important disappeared. 
And uh, so she went and did the experiment, and two days later she came into my office and had a very sour look on her face, and she said the experiment didn't work. And I said, oh, really? And she said, yeah. I said, you mean the peptide didn't disappear? And she said, no. And I said, well, why don't you bring the data and show it to me? And she brought the data, and the peptide hadn't disappeared. It had increased 40-fold. Now, that's a gigantic effect in neurochemistry. I mean, I started out with effects that were 35%. Um, so I said to her, this is really exciting. And she said, no, it didn't come out the way it was supposed to. And I said, if an experiment comes out not the way it's supposed to, and particularly if it comes out the opposite, that's really exciting, because that means that there was something you totally didn't know about. And she wouldn't buy it. Uh, she actually didn't continue in graduate school. I don't think it was all because of that experiment. But anyway, so the question was, why did it go up 40%? And it turned out it went up 40% because the neurons in the ganglia were making it in response to axotomy. So exotomy is where you cut the axons of a neuron. And we showed that if you go back to the animal and you know don't take the ganglia, but just cut the axons in the animal, it also goes up 30 or 40 fold. It's so, in fact, it's been expressed in a different place. Before. In a different place. It was supposed to be expressed in the input neurons, and now it's been expressed in the output. And the trivial explanation could be that when you cut the axons, then things can't get transported out of the cells down the axons because it's blocked, and maybe it just builds up. But that wasn't the case because when we looked at the messenger RNA, where we couldn't detect it when we took the ganglia out of the animal, after two days you could detect it. So it was being made de novo in a new place, in a, in a cell that wouldn't normally express it. And um, so we thought that was pretty interesting, and we studied a bunch of different molecules, and it turned out that a number of them increased quite dramatically in the cells whose axons you had cut. And then it turned out that a number of things that the neurons normally made were down-regulated in response to the axonomy. So I sort of picture it as a seesaw, that you start out with a bunch of molecules that are being made and a bunch of molecules that aren't being made, and then it flips. And you, you down-regulate the ones that were made and you up-regulate ones that weren't made. And the ones that you down-regulated are actually molecules that have to do with uh, synaptic transmission. And if you think about it, those axons are no longer un uh, involved in synaptic transmission because they're no longer connected to their targets. So, you know, the, the one simple idea is that the neuron changes its priority. And instead of making molecules for synaptic transmission, it starts making molecules for regeneration. Now, many of those molecules that we know it makes, we don't really know what their function is. 
but the hypothesis is that they help regeneration to occur. And one of them has been studied. Uh, it's, a it's another neuropeptide called galanin. It's interesting that a lot of these molecules that are upregulated are neuropeptides. So this is called galanin. And a group in Bristol uh, knocked out galanin and showed that sciatic nerve regeneration was dramatically slowed in the absence of galanin. So galanin, again, it's a, it's a molecule that these neurons don't normally express, but if you exotomize them, they express a lot of it. And so that's the best tie-in between this upregulation and uh, regeneration. Do, do the sympathetic neurons shed their synapses when their axons are cut, like motor neurons do? They do. They do. Uh, so they, uh, people call it synaptic stripping. And you mean this um, upstream? Uh, yeah, isn't this weird? I mean, when I was a graduate student, this was like something everybody was talking about. Nobody talks about it now, and I, I bring it up whenever I can, so I'm yeah. doing it now. If you cut the motor neuron axon in the periphery, the motor neuron in the spinal cord, was shed at synapse. All the inputs to that motor that, neuron. Yeah, it's oh, those those axons don't go away; they hang around. But the but the motor neuron rejects the synapses and disconnects itself from those. And then when the axon grows out again, it'll they'll, they'll be reestablished at least partly. I don't know. Yeah. It must be yep. about the same. Yeah, that's so. true. That's true. So, uh, yeah, it was first demonstrated in motor neurons, I think, in the facial motor nerve by uh, Kreutzberg. Uh, and, and Dale Purvis and Margaret Matthews both independently showed that if you stimulate the input to a sympathetic ganglia, you can record an action potential and or a compound action potential because you're recording from a whole host of of uh, neurons. If you axonomize those neurons and then stimulate, after a day or two, you get nothing. There's no response. And I, I don't think People have studied it. I don't think it's really well understood how it happens or why it happens, but it would appear that in evolution that there must be some um, um, opposition between being stimulated electrically or, or neurochemically and regeneration. There must be some advantage to no longer getting these inputs. Uh, but I don't know that anyone's actually proven Some that. of the neurochemical changes that you study may have to do with regulation of those synapses on the inputs. To the, that it could. Areas. That's it right. Well. That's right. It could, it could, it could be uh, preparing the neuron to attract the inputs uh, that, that come in. So yeah. it's not, it's it's not, I guess it's not known that the synapses that are regained once the uh, axon has regrown are the same synapses, right? They could be new synapses? Uh, yeah, so what was shown, actually it was a paper that I was involved in, but um, I didn't do any of this. Uh, Jeffrey Raisman showed that if you, if you cut the input, and you can look in the ganglia, and what you find is vacated synaptic sites. 
So they have the morphology, postsynaptic morphology of, of a synapse. And when, cool. and when the nerve regenerates and comes back, those sites disappear. So he argued that they go back to the same place. But actually something that we've been very interested in uh, and actually published a paper earlier last year was how correct are the synapses that are formed. Yeah. Now this is a diversion, but I can tell you, so one of the places that the spear cervical ganglia innervates is the pineal gland. Also, the seat of the soul, according to according to Descartes. Um, okay, so the the pineal gland is very interesting, and for a lot of reasons. But one reason is, it's a gland that's that secretes melatonin at night and not during the day, and the enzyme that. Um, that makes melatonin, that regulates the rate of melatonin synthesis, increases, again, 40-fold every night and uh, disappears rapidly once the lights are on. So it's a, it's a really wonderful readout of function. Okay, so, but of course the spear cervical ganglia innervates a lot of other tissues, the salivary gland, the iris, etc. And um, there's no reason to think that any of those uh, operate on a circadian rhythm. So we said, okay, we'll crush the input axons to the spiro-cervical ganglia, leave time for them to grow back. We, we left like 100 days, so there's plenty of time for them to grow back, and ask whether this circadian rhythm came back. And it only came back 15% of its normal. And so we said, well, of course, there could be a lot of reasons. Maybe the regeneration is incomplete. And we did a bunch of experiments, but the most powerful one was we electrically stimulated the regenerating axons. And the question was, does the pineal gland respond as normal, or does it respond 15% of normal? And it responded as well and slightly better than normal. So we came to the conclusion that the regenerating axons were making mistakes. Some of them got back to the right place, but a lot so of them... So is the iris like changing in that? So that's what people <laughs> ask is, uh, so presumably that's right, that uh, that cells going to other tissues, which normally didn't get circadian information, would be um, circadian now. Okay, circadian. But we didn't go around looking. Um, so that's interesting because one, one issue of regeneration is not only the growth of the exotomized axon, but also the fact that it has to reach the correct target again. Exactly. So what you're saying is that they don't reach the correct target necessarily. They reach many targets, and only the few, say 15% or so, that actually reach the correct target yeah. are functional. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's it's interesting. And, and the prejudice before we did these experiments was that we would get the rhythm back normally because uh, this, was this kind of thing 
in a different way to, and explains why they got different results was studied by John Langley in 1902. Uh, but he did a different kind of experiment and he didn't look at a physiological response. He looked at the response to nerve stimulation and nerve stimulation is fine. I mean, those neurons are there, they, they have transmitter, they release it, the cells are responsive to it. But if you don't stimulate and you ask the animal to do the stimulation, uh, it can't do it normally. And during that regeneration period, the animal was just running around in their cage doing normal things, right? Yeah. So they, they were exposed to a circadian rhythm and to the stimuli that made their irises go and all the usual stuff. So if there was a learning room or something involved, it, it should have been able to operate. should have been there. It's interesting that uh, uh, the question I was asked at my seminar about the other animals was asked to me recently for the first time about these pineal animals and what's their behavior like. And, you know, we don't study behavior, so not only haven't we studied it, but we didn't even think of it. But it's an interesting question. There should be differences. There should be some... So tell us about macrophages. Okay. Okay. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got off stream. So um, we found out, it was 19 years ago again now, that, uh, okay, so what's the basic story about macrophages? The story is that when you cut an axon, the part of the axon you know, there, there are two sides. There's the distal side and the proximal side, and that's with reference to where the cell body is. So the distal side, which is away from the cell body, dies. It falls apart, fragments, uh, doesn't conduct action potentials, and it gets cleared away. The, the debris gets cleared away by macrophages. And uh, so that's been known for a long time. And um, the other thing uh, that's been found um, somewhat more recently, but for a while, uh, is that that clearing away uh, was, came to be thought of as being essential for the nerves to regenerate. In other words, unless you cleared the pathway, the axons couldn't make their way back for a number of different reasons. Um, but we had focused all our attention on the neuronal cell bodies, not on their axons. So we thought to ask, well, do macrophages come into the neuronal cell bodies after an injury, after exotomy? And it turned out that they did. quite. Dramatically, I mean, there are a lot of macrophages in a uh, sympathetic ganglia or in a in a dorsal root sensory ganglia within about two days after the axons of these cells were cut, and um, and we found out why they came in, and the reason is that they the neurons very rapidly actually after they're cut within six hours are making a molecule called the chemokine, which uh, stands for chemoattractive cytokine, and cytokine is just a molecule that one cell releases that, that um, 
that stimulates another cell. Uh, it's used primarily in, in immunology, but uh, more and more in neuroscience. So it turns out that when these cells are exotomized, they make the chemokine, which brings macrophages in. So, uh, so that was pretty interesting. But we had no idea what the macrophages were doing there because uh, the function of the macrophages in the axon is to ingest, called phagocytosis, the debris and to um, metabolize it, to, to degrade it. Um, but there wasn't anything, in our view, there was nothing to degrade in the cell bodies. So what were they doing there? And we really didn't know. Uh, and what we now believe uh, is that those macrophages come in in response to an injury and that they signal the neurons, stimulate their regenerative capacity. So, you know, it, it's becoming more and more clear um, the relationship between the immune system and the nervous system. So uh, then the uh, macrophages themselves are releasing some other That's some our other That's our hypothesis. We're just starting to look at that. Yeah. Actually, we just did the first experiment this week. Uh, so the thing is, what are they releasing, and what is its impact? Right. So is the idea that the macrophages are specialized in function that a certain type are recruited to the cell body to the distal and the proximal elements or like what? Yeah, so one of the big things in immunology now, we find dozens and dozens of papers on it, is that there are um, different states that a macrophage can be in. So macrophages come from monocytes in the blood and they come from the bone marrow. So they go into the blood as monocytes and then they enter tissues and from then on they're called macrophages. So people talk about M1 and M2 macrophages and M1 macrophages are said to be pro-inflammatory and M2 macrophages are said to be anti-inflammatory. And, and there, there are immunologists who say that's really simplified and there are many more subtypes than that. But, yeah, our idea would be that they're doing something very different in the axonal compartment than they are in the cell body compartment, and we'd like to show that, that, they're, that the cytokines that they're releasing are different because it wouldn't... It wouldn't really make sense if they were the same because their function is so different. Well, they're not actually phagocytosing anything. There's nothing to phagocytose in That's this. That's what we think. The cell body region. Right. right. Yeah. At least there's not much that needs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> More than usual, I suppose. <laughs> um, yeah. So one, one thing I'd like to do is find some markers for macrophages, I, I just don't know the area well enough, this is such a new area for us, that that indicate that that cell is now phagocytosing and show that those markers don't appear in the cell body region but do in the axonal region. But I, I just say as an aside, um, 
one of the big developments over the last, I don't know what, 15 years, something like that, is that, a, that almost every neurological disease is now um, seen as having a immunological component and often macrophages or in the central nervous system it would be microglia. So uh, Alzheimer's di di uh, disease, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, uh, multiple sclerosis probably been known for a long, long time. So we think that this area is really uh, an exciting area. Um, and, and actually in this field, sort of neuroinflammation, there are these tug of wars between people, at least who used to say it's all negative, it's all um, uh, destructive, and other people who said no, it is helpful. And you know, my guess that most people now would say it can be both, and it depends on the circumstances and the cytokines that are being released and what other immune cells are involved. Um, so, so I think it is really, really quite exciting. Um, so one of the, I mean, one of the most fundamental facts about regeneration of axons is it works better in the peripheral nervous system than it does in the central nervous system. Right. And there's a difference in the inflammatory responses in the two places. Could those things be connected? Could it be that this access to the... I mean, we normally say the brain is immunologically privileged, and that sounds like a good thing to be. But maybe it's not such a good thing to be. It could be that the peripheral nervous system gains some of its regenerative capacity from the fact that it's not immunologically privileged. Yeah. I mean, the, the extent to which the central nervous system is immune privilege, I think, has changed. Um, there's, there's some very exciting uh, experiments um, in the CNS. Um, uh, um, a researcher at Ohio State has shown that um, in certain behavioral paradigms, stressful paradigms, that macro and this is, so this doesn't involve any injury or any breach of the blood-brain barrier. Macrophages will go into the central nervous system, and what he found that I thought was the most exciting was that if you look at the areas of the central nervous system that are excited during that behavioral paradigm uh, by looking at the activation of CFOS, it is exactly those areas to which the macrophages go. So they're not going randomly, they're being called in. Uh, and, um, you know, I don't think he knows exactly what they're doing, what their function is, but that's one thing. Um, in the spinal cord, um, I guess I would say that most of what I'm aware of, and it's not my field, uh, has been so has been negative effects. 
Um, actually, a, a member of my department studies a phenomena called axonal dieback. So, sort of the opposite of regeneration, that uh, when neurons are cut, they, they sometimes die back. And, and that is on the same process, but it dies back into the proximal region. Yeah, that, that's right. So, yeah. I was going to ask you about that. What's the tipping point that decides one or the whether, other? Do we, do whether it goes forward yeah. or dies back. He says, uh, he has data that says that macrophages make them die back. So again, well, what kind of macrophages, and and uh, and could you transform those macrophages into something which would make them jump forward rather than dying back? Um, but the, but as you probably know, there are there are a lot of ideas about why central neurons don't grow. Um, one is that there are molecules uh, present in the injured central nervous system which inhibit growth, and uh, one set of those are myelin proteins, and another set are um, molecules called chondroitin sulfate proteoglycans. And for example, Again, the same lab, it's Jerry Silver's lab in my department, they, they show and others have shown that if you degrade those chondroitin sulfate proteoglycans, the axons will grow better. They'll, they, they'll grow somewhat. Uh, and then there's a group in Switzerland which says if you block some of these myelin proteins, the axons will grow better. So, there's, so that's, a, that's a kind of extrinsic influence on regeneration that's received a lot of attention. What's receiving more, more attention now is what, is what you referred to as the intrinsic growth capacity. So people used to say, well, central neurons just don't grow. They just, they don't have it anymore. Uh, they grow in development and then they stop growing. Well, people have found, well, there are two things that people found. I mean, one were the famous experiments of Albert Aguayo, who um, did experiments of the following type. He would take the eye and the nerve coming out of the eye, the optic nerve, and he would cut it and the axons wouldn't grow. Uh, and then he took a piece of peripheral nerve. So the axon in that nerve was irrelevant because it would die over a period of time. But he would take that nerve and he would stick it in a position so it was right where the cut uh, optic nerve fibers were. And what happened was the fibers grew into the peripheral nerve and grew along it for quite a long distance. I mean, he could, let's say, I, I actually don't remember, but it, you could take a, a big piece of peripheral nerve from the sciatic nerve, and it would grow all the way through it. But then it ran into problems when it got to the other end, because now it was back in the central nervous system, and it couldn't handle it. So that said that those neurons are mainly suffering from the wrong environment. 
it wasn't that they didn't have the intrinsic ability. But there are other experiments more recently where people have clever experiments where they have said, well, maybe this pathway is limiting the growth of central nervous system. So I'm going to do genetic manipulations and knock out this pathway and see what happens. Biochemical pathway. Growth. Hmm? Pathway in that case. Biochemical pathway, pathway, yeah. Biochemical pathway. So, I mean, one of them is a, is a cytokine pathway, actually, that, that we've studied a lot. And it turns out that in this cytokine pathway, there is an inhibitory molecule which can shut off the pathway. So he said, well, I'll just knock out that inhibitor and see what happens. And he got really nice growth of the optic nerve. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a lot of that now. And, you know, I, th I think a lot of progress has been made uh, quite recently. And... You know, the question will be, the question in the central nervous system, I think that's not always discussed so much, is, well, when you say it regrows, what are you actually saying? Are you saying it grows back to its target? Well, you almost never are saying that. You're saying it grows beyond the injury site, and sometimes trivially and sometimes impressively. But, you know... I think the idea is that if you put together the three or four things we've learned, that eventually uh, you might get good growth. And then you'd face the same experiment that I uh, discussed with regard to the pineal, is how accurate will the regrowth be? Because um, that's what you, you want function back. So in the peripheral nerve, it's the the residuum of the distal uh, piece of nerve that in the neural tubes provide a kind of path and tell the axon how to get to where it's right. going. And in those experiments, there's the same endoneural tubes are now being offered to the optic nerve, and the optic nerve sort of follows them. So in the peripheral nervous system, those tubes lead to the right place. It's the cut, exactly the right cut axon. And in fact, tell me if I'm wrong about this, but if you take the distal part of the nerve and pull it away so that the new axons can't find their way into it. They won't find their way to the right place. And people are usually try to try to get the nerve yeah. approximately yeah. back in the right position. Yeah. Pre the pretty much the way the standard way of getting peripheral regeneration is to crush the nerve, thereby leaving these tubes called bands of Bungner uh, intact and you know, and, and the axons can go back along those tubes. Um, if you cut the nerve, and particularly if you cut the nerve and take a piece out, um, regeneration is much worse. And, and I think if you, if you direct it away from the right pathway, it's probably nothing. Yeah, it has to have that. But there's, again, there's a very exciting work going on um, uh, in, okay, so you have mixed nerves, like the sciatic nerve has sensory, motor, and autonomic. So if you, uh, you let's say you cut that and then you re-anastomose it, 
the question is, can they go? Can they find the right Schwann cells to follow? And this group at Hopkins, who um, who has done some clever things, is they're looking at whether Schwann cells around motor neurons differ in the genes that are expressed and uh, the proteins that are made than Schwann cells that are around sensory neurons. And they do that by taking this, the dorsal root and the ventral root and comparing them. And they find differences. And um, so, you know, depending on what those molecules are and whether the axons have receptors, you could imagine them making the right choices. Now, you know, still whether they're going to go back to the right muscle fiber, that's asking a lot more, and they're not down to that level of accuracy yet. Of course, in the muscle fibers, the motor neurons can kind of correct. There are a lot of classic experiments where they swap slow and fast yeah. muscle nerves, and so the fast neurons innovate the slow muscle and vice versa, and the motor neurons just switch yeah. from fast to slow motor neurons and vice versa, so they can uh, figure it out after they get there. Yeah. yeah. Or even perhaps motor cortex could just um, relearn how to... How to Run things. Yeah, they must have to. Yeah. It must have to then, because right. now the fast motor neurons are going to the slow right. muscle, yeah. and they but they have their old central connections. Now, of course, this is probably just the beginning because macrophages are only one, and not even the most plentiful of uh, white blood cells in the in the in the bloodstream. Uh, there are neutrophils. There are people now saying that neutrophils can promote regeneration. Uh, there are T cells, you know, whose biology is quite complicated and who interact with macrophages. And it's just not clear at this point how deep into immunology this field is, is going to have to go. How do you see this? How do you see the trends? Sort of, do you see immunologists sort of jumping ship and headed more in the neuroscience into the neuroscience? Or the other way around? Because you're sort of the other other way around, right? You're yeah, possibly. yeah. I carry my immunology textbook on all airplane rides. <laughs> um, well, you know, when I was a graduate student, it was the very beginning of molecular biology switching into neuroscience. Um, there were a lot of them, and those of us who were not molecular biologists were, you know, we could have done without it because those guys were really bright and we thought they were going to wipe us off the table. But um, it didn't happen. Somehow. It didn't really happen. <laughs> no, it didn't happen. We're still here. Um, <clears throat> but they brought in great techniques. I don't know. I don't. I don't actually see it yet. Um, I would say that a neuroscience student has to take an immunology course. I mean, it would be crazy not to. And I, in fact, am, uh, I guess you'd call me an auditor in a, in a it's called fundamental immunology. Um, 
I'm taking it, and fortunately, because I'm traveling, they record the lectures, and I can uh, I can watch them. And uh, one of the students asked me when was the last time I had taken a course, and I said when I was in college. So, but it's really it's quite a bit of fun. It's a complicated subject. Um, they say neurosciences too, but it's pretty complicated immunology. This has been great. Thank you so much for joining us, Richard Sigmund. And this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you.